church, our text of study this morning comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I've told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. 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 Thanks be to God indeed. All right, so this morning... Um, I want to just draw our attention back to the bridge in that last song, Jesus is Better, just for a second. Because I think this bridge in that song probably captures the heart of the topic we're going to talk about this morning from John 3 on the new birth, as good as it does anywhere. Just think about these confessions that we were singing just a moment ago. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. In every victory, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Then any comfort, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. More than in all riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Our souls declaring, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe song eternal Jesus is better say it with me make my heart believe the um, the world we live in does something we all know it's the right thing they do but they don't know exactly that the ends that they pursue to fulfill it aren't the exact as what we would do as believers but The world we live in has this driving desire to find the ultimate, right? To find meaning, to find purpose, to find happiness, to find joy. You and I know as Christians that that's built into our DNA, right? It's built into our spiritual DNA, our what we might call the imago Dei, the the image of God that has been that we were made in His image. That that pursuit for meaning and purpose and happiness and joy extends from being made in the image of God. And being born again, as we'll talk about this morning, to be born again Christians, we understand that we must experience, the only way we can find these things is to experience them in the the new life that is given to us in Christ. And that's the only way we can sing confessions like we sing this morning. We know that there is no healing into our sorrows except in Christ. And for me to believe that, God must make my heart believe. It's a hard concept, isn't it? It challenges us on so many levels intellectually. 
that's, that in order for me to do something that I should freely want to do, I need spiritual heart surgery in order to do it. I need a work, supernatural work of the Spirit to make it happen. Amen. Today we talk about new birth. It is fundamentally the most essential antidote to everything you and I know that's broken in the world. I don't think that's an overstatement at all. And as we think about this text this morning, I just want us to be reminded of this, of this, this truth, this, this idea, this summary, if you will, that the salvation we all need, and, and just load in that bridge, the salvation from our sorrow, the salvation, the victory of our sin, the, the comfort that we're lacking without Christ, the, the, um, the, the kind of salvation that's better than all the riches of the world, all the things we sing. The salvation we need from these things or for these things can't happen by external or religious experience, but it can only happen by new birth of the heart through the regenerating power of God's Spirit. Amen. A lot to unpack there in that statement, isn't it? I think we'll see some wonderful things today as we dig into this, for most of us, probably a pretty familiar passage. But there's a lot here that I afraid, I'm afraid that sometimes we assume we understand than, rather than what we maybe actually do. I was challenged by so many aspects of this doctrine of the new birth, this doctrine of regeneration this week in my own studies, to the point that I was still working on it this afternoon, this sermon. My mind was in all kinds of glorious places, but I knew I had to, <laughs> I had to bring it here in order for it to be helpful, not just letter rip tater chip kind of sermon this morning, right? Or this afternoon. So let's think about some context that we've been talking about in this entire series so far, because they're going to help us see this idea of new birth better, I think. You got to understand that before we can dive into this text with Nicodemus and Jesus and Jesus telling him about the new birth and like, you got to understand that's set into this larger context of this first sign that we talked about a couple weeks ago. The first sign is what? Jesus turning the water into wine. And that, that sign is really a, it's, it's to show us that Jesus is the new Sabbath. He's our new rest. That in Christ, he is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. Amen. That's that first sign in some. And we saw last week that as the new Sabbath right? As Christ is our new Sabbath, as our new rest, he is therefore that true temple, that new temple. If you were able to tune in online last week, that new temple that demonstrates God's presence and reminds us that he is the one who sets forth the terms for you know, forgiveness from our sins, that, that word atonement, that big word we use sometimes around here. And what that ultimately means is that that makes Jesus the supreme object and affection of our worship, and that should be everything we do here on Sunday mornings, Sunday afternoons. That we can sing Jesus is better because he is the object of everything God is. Do we get that? And, in, and so by having that as our context, we recognize that today, understanding that Jesus is our true rest, understanding that Jesus is our true temple, that helps us understand that he is the means, the only means, towards that new birth that we all need, that we all hopefully in this room have experienced if you've made our confessions true. Now that's the first major idea that we're sitting this text on top of today. 
But there's another idea that Jesus left out with, left from in um, chapter 2 last week that also tells us the kind of the immediate context of Nicodemus's conversation. Look back at verse 23 of last chapter, chapter 2. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So Jesus is, like, he's doing some things, and people are believing in it. They're believing in him. But then we have these words that John gives us. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them because he knew them all. Because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Man looks for God in so many places. Man looks for to, 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 to see signs and wonders of God in all kinds of places, except most of the time right where God has revealed himself, and namely revealed himself in Christ. And so that's the immediate context, because now we get Nicodemus who comes on the scene, and Nicodemus comes in, and he basically confirms what Jesus just said, that he knows what's in man. He did not entrust himself because all they were looking for is just merely signs. And so look at what it says in these first two or three verses. Again, this man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs, again, back to verse 24, that you do unless God was with him. So Nicodemus is suffering from the same issues that Jesus is talking about as to why man can't be, cannot be trusted because there's a fundamental brokenness of sin that all of us are born into. Like we, 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 we can't just automatically assume that we understand the things that we see. We can't automatically assume that, that, we are, that, that we see clearer than we actually do because ultimately we're all born into this thing called sin, this thing called disobedience, this thing called rebellion, and it taints everything about us. This is who we are born by nature because of the fall. Now, that's important because I don't know about you and how many times you've read this passage over the years, but for me, I've always kind of read this text with Nicodemus and this exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus with a kind of sympathetic ear or an eye towards Nicodemus. He's kind of a likable guy, right? He seems like he's coming on the scene and he's, and he's just like, I just, I just want to do the right thing. I have good intentions here, Jesus. I mean, I kind of want to get in here, get beyond all the drama that everyone else wants to make, but I just want to kind of slide in here, and maybe you're not going to have a nice little chit-chat here by the fire, Jesus. This is kind of the likable nature um, that we kind of assume, at least I do, maybe you do, maybe you don't, that's fine if you don't agree with me on that, but, um, but he just wants to kind of come in here and just, he's coming in here at dark, when no one else is kind of watching, let's just have a nice, calm conversation, shall we? That's kind of his, his, his countenance coming into the situation. But the problem with that is, as, as sincere as Nicodemus may be, and here I can't read too much into this text, it's not my place to read too much into what exactly is going on in Nicodemus's heart, although we can let his words give us some clue to that, it's true that if this is, if this is on the heels of what Jesus said, that he, that he knew what was in them, he knows something that's in Nicodemus that Nicodemus doesn't know exists there. Amen. He knows something about Nicodemus' lack of meaningful awareness of his sinful disposition. He knows something about the, the lack of his, or his, the, the need for his spiritual um, condition. 
And there's a couple things that we notice here in this first couple of verses that really help us see that Nicodemus is blind to some things. Now, I've already noticed, noted for a second there, he came by night. Now, there's no reason to believe that he didn't come by night. He actually probably did come by night. But you've got to understand something about how John uses the word, different words. He always uses certain types of themes throughout his gospel and also in his epistles at the end of the New Testament. And he uses this idea of night a lot of times to be more symbolic of brokenness, something hiding, something um, kind of cloaked. It's, it's representing something deeper, more spiritual than just the fact that it was nighttime. And so John's using this, this, this moment that, that literally did happen, but he's using it as kind of a, a bigger, kind of more symbolic way to show us that, that, that Nicodemus is hiding from something. He's either hiding from his peers, the rulers, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, that he's, his crowd he runs with. Perhaps he's trying to hide from Jesus. Maybe he's trying to make himself look better to Jesus. Maybe he's just trying to look, make himself look a little bit more insightful. Right, and these other guys, I don't think they got you down, Jesus, but you know what? I get what you're doing. I see what you're trying to say. Um, can we have a chat about this? Or there's one more option he could be hiding from. He could be hiding from himself. He could actually be hiding from himself. Maybe he lives in a deep spiritual darkness. In fact, he does live in his deep spiritual darkness, and he's blissfully unaware of the reality of his own life. So this darkness kind of clues us into something that's kind of going on in this whole engagement that kind of sets the stage for this conversation with Jesus. But notice how then he speaks to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, um, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. We know. Well, what's he doing there? This idea of we, like, hey, me and my crew, right? Um, my, my, the guys that I run with, the rulers of the Jews, the, the, the religious elite here, hey, we know, hey, Jesus, we're willing to say, and we're willing to confer upon you the status of a teacher. You, you're a teacher. We get that. Kind of waxing eloquently with Jesus, as if Jesus would, couldn't see right through all of that. Perhaps, Jesus, you might be a good fit for our posse. You're a good teacher. And if we can win you to our side, man, we can do a lot of good together. We know you're a teacher. But you and I know here today, especially since we've been studying so far through John, is he's not merely a teacher, is he? That we've already seen throughout this idea, this first sign, that he's more than a teacher. He is, that, he is the new Sabbath. He is the Sabbath rest. He is the, the prophet, the priest, and the king. That's what, G, that's what John's going to show us and continue to unfold for us throughout his gospel. So whatever it is that Nicodemus sees, he doesn't see the whole picture, does he? And Jesus knows he doesn't see the picture. And Jesus will respond in kind, but directly to him here in just a moment. Whatever the case is, he's just trying to grease the wheels with Jesus. He's, he's just saying, look, you know, hey, we, re, we understand that you, know, you are, like, we religious playmakers, we got it. We know who you are. And we're ready to kind of play in. We're ready to buy, buy into your, to your teaching, um, Jesus. Uh, just, just kind of know your role. Hey, play within the boundaries. Play with, get in the right playground, Jesus. And we can all do a lot more together than we can apart. So let's all get in the same playground. But it's more than that. The reason that they have assumed this title of teacher is because of what? No one could perform these signs 
you do unless God were with him. Nobody. No one could perform these signs. So in other words, what he's doing, it's confirmation, right? It's confirmation of everything that Jesus said in the end of chapter 2. He knew what was in man because you're just enamored by signs. You're just enamored by wonders. You don't see what those wonders and those signs are actually pointing to. And what's even more staggering, what's more shocking about this whole engagement is who it's coming from. Like Here are the rulers of the Jews who should have known better than anyone who Jesus was when he came on the scene. But they were the last to understand, if they ever did. They were the last to understand that everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. The covenant with Abraham points to Christ. The sacrifice of Isaac pointing to the fact that God would sacrifice a better son. The fact that God sends Moses and that Jesus would be a better prophet than Moses. That God would establish his law, but Jesus himself is the very word that, is, makes the, that speaks the law. Do you see how this keeps on going? There is the temple. Jesus is the true and better temple, the true and better presence. Like everything in the Old Testament should have seen this, and Nicodemus and his whole crew were the last to see it. The last to understand it. And, and listen, let me just stop for a second there. Because we can get so familiar with the Bible and get so familiar with our doctrine, it's easy for us to slide in that place too. I mean, please, please understand that. You can read all the R.C. Sproul books you want. You can read all the Wayne Gruden books and say, I've got it. I've got everything I need to know. But you can be so far from Jesus. So whatever it is, no matter how likable this guy Nicodemus is, John wants to make it very clear that he's in desperate need of new birth, and, and so are we. And that, what, that's the real idea here that John wants us to see, that, that's, that salvation doesn't come by our likability. Our salvation doesn't come by goodwill. Our salvation doesn't come by uh, good intentions. And we are just like Nicodemus, aren't we? That we sometimes can kind of slot ourselves into this place of, well, I have good intentions, so you should, you should, just, kind of, you should just kind of go with me because I have good intentions here. You should just kind of believe me. Or I have good will here. I have, or I'm a likable guy. Or I'm a likable woman. Like this is what we, we kind of sometimes fall into this trap. But see, listen, here's the thing. We, like mankind, humanity, we're plagued with this overconfidence that's hard for us to see ourselves really honestly. We're plagued with this kind of confidence that drives too many things to the center of our gospel witness instead of keeping it purely about Jesus. And that's exactly what Jews did, and it's exactly what we do today. We drive too many things to the heart of the gospel, and we then forget that it's overshadowing Jesus. That's what Nicodemus was doing. That's what his whole crew was doing. That's what we do sometimes if we're not careful. Our overassurance in ourselves to see what we think of the works of God, but at the same time, we miss God altogether. And here is God sitting right in front of Nicodemus. Right? This is who he is. And so I just want, just want to wrestle with that personally because I've actually sat in the room, I've sat across tables with many believers who, who did what I just mentioned a few minutes ago. They're like, hey, I've got all that down, Pastor. I've read Sproul. I've read 
you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have read these guys, and I've got that down. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go pursue all this other knowledge, and I'm going to try to squeeze it into a gospel grid. And they end up contorting the gospel. They end up blinding themselves from the gospel. And that's not the gospel at all. And we've talked about that all over. That's what's been going on in our world today. The kind of, kind of the tug and pull for the, for the real gospel message is, is alive and well out there, whether it's the right politics or the right social ambitions, whatever it may be. These are the things that are competing against the gospel today. And we've got to be careful about that, church, because we have one responsibility, to preach the gospel. And if the gospel's tainted, we're not offering anyone any real hope. That's at least one aspect of this that we need to see. And brothers and sisters, I just want to ask ourselves, and just ask us to consider before we move on to the second point, where might we be guilty of that here this morning? And so this is where Jesus finds Nicodemus. This is what he understood about Nicodemus that Nicodemus didn't understand about himself. And here's what Jesus says is the antidote. This is what Jesus says is, a, is, is that how you can deal with what's going on in Nicodemus' heart and by extension, our hearts. New birth. Just pick up with me in verse 3. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Drop on down. Again, takes it to another level. Verse 5, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is spirit is spirit. Born of the spirit of the spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. Jesus is making it very clear what is the real problem that, that Nicodemus faces and what everybody in this room faces if we do not know Jesus. We suffer from the fact that we live without new birth. We live, we are dead. This is what it really means. And, and, and here's the thing that I want us to wrestle with this morning because I think all of us come from this kind of larger, evangelical kind of world and we're familiar with this idea of new birth. But I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can kind of take that for granted and think we assume certain knowledge about the new birth that maybe we don't always, or maybe we can, should be, I don't know, thinking more deeply about. So what is it that we believe about this idea of being born again, new birth, or the theology of regeneration? Well, here, I'm going to read a couple things from our confession here at Grace, and then we'll kind of go to the scriptures. The, the seventh section of the New Hampshire Confession says this, we believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in a giving of a holy disposition to the mind, that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel, and that, and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. Let's just kind of break it down for a second. What's he saying? Regeneration is something that is wrought by the Holy Spirit. It affects our minds. It affects our hearts and it affects our hands. It has a complete and full transformation reality in our lives. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is a more modern, more generalized Baptist faith, uh, Baptist confession, says of the same thing. Regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus it is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. 
So in other words, new birth in its most essential evidence is that there's a, something that happens supernaturally within us, and it's done by God himself, and it manifests itself in belief in who Christ is, and it manifests itself in a, in a, a desire to repent from sin, walk and turn from sin, and to experience new life. The great Anglican preacher from a couple of centuries ago now, J.C. Ryle, says this, it, was, it is a thorough change of the heart. It's a thorough change of the will and character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts a new principle from above. And so when Jesus unpacks this idea of new birth, this is what he has in mind. Now let's just look at the text here, and he shows us why new birth is so important for us. And he gives us three reasons why new birth is so important to us. Number one, and we see this here in verses 3 through 4, it is utterly necessary. Our new birth is not just some kind of fly-by-night, high-minded theology thing. It is absolutely necessary for you and I this morning. You don't have a hope for anything walking out of this place this morning unless Christ births it in, births it in you through the Spirit. He says as much here in verses 3 through 4. He says it right there. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. We're completely unable to see because of the ravages of sin. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. We are probably all very familiar with this in the first three verses. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in in, in the disobedient. We, too, were all previously living among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children of wrath. Jesus says it's important that we recognize that this is necessary because that is our condition. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher from a, from a century ago or earlier in the, in, the, in the 20th century, says this, the world is not interested in the affairs of the soul at all and tries to avoid considering them at all costs. The world is, a, is spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, and they regard spiritual things as utterly boring. It wants to enjoy the world. It is out of the glittering prize and wants to pursue the glittering prizes the world has to offer. But the Christian has been made spiritually alive. He is very concerned about the affairs of the soul. They are the things that come first in his life and in all his thinking. How then has this happened? It is the power of Christ that has, made, that has come upon him. God has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. That is why the new birth matters. That is why the new birth is utterly necessary. That without new birth, we are not able to, as Jesus says here in verse 3, not able to see the kingdom of God. Now think about that. He's having this conversation with Nicodemus. He is no doubt looking right into Nicodemus' eyes. And he's saying, brother, your pseudo-religious efforts are not able to see the works of the kingdom, no matter how much you think that they do. Don't come to me with your, 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 your waxing on eloquently about the fact that I'm a great teacher because I have all these great, great signs. You don't see a darn thing, brother. You don't. You're blind. 
I don't care how steeped you are in, the Jewish, in your Jewish heritage, you cannot see, even though you've convinced yourself that you can see. And I love, like, Nicodemus's response. Well, uh, and it's kind of like, you know, you ever get into one of these, like, literalistic arguments with a teenager, right? You say something, and it's like, okay, say, uh, hey, hey, what's up today? And what are they naturally going to say to you? The ceiling. Right? Like, they're going to say that because they just want to be annoying to you at that moment, and they want to see if they can get your good, right? Um, they do sometimes, right? They, they get the best of us. And I think that's kind of what I think Nicodemus is kind of going. He's kind of going to this ultra-literalistic place about, okay, so you're saying I got to go back into my mama's womb and get reborn again, and that seems kind of awkward, and, uh, you know, and he knows better what he's saying. Of course Nicodemus knows that this is not what Jesus is saying, but he's using this as a way to go like, really, Jesus, are you telling me my birth doesn't count for anything? Because he knew he was a Jew. He knew he was part of the promised people of God. And he had a hard time believing that he had to be born again because he, he himself was of the genetic line of Abraham. Right? But he wasn't of the line of Jesus. He wasn't part of that covenant that God had made with Abraham that was actually all about Jesus. He may very well been a part, had the same genes as, uh, as his father Abraham, but he was far from Christ. He was far from Christ. And friends, that's where we sometimes find ourselves. We find ourselves not recognizing our utter need that it takes more than just being born into a Christian home. All my young people, your mom and daddy's faith won't get it done for you. Your mom and daddy's commitment to church won't get it done for you. They won't. You know why? Because they themselves had to stand before Christ too and had to repent of their sin and they had to believe upon Christ. And friends, that's the same for you. And they do what they're doing because they want to honor Christ, but they're also doing what they're doing because they want you to see the same Jesus that they've seen. Amen. Mom and dad, you can, you can write check later if you want me to on that one. Um, so that helps you out there. Um, but the reality is that that's, that's the truth. It won't get it done. Your heritage, just because you grew up in the South and the Bible Belt South, won't get it done. It won't. I don't care if you're red, you're blue, or white, or black. It doesn't matter. None of those things matter. None of that stuff will get it done. Only the new birth of Christ will actually get it done. That's why it's so necessary. But the second thing Jesus shows us here of why this new birth is so important is that it's utterly supernatural. Now look, this is going to be tough. But this word born again is probably not the right usage. It actually means born from above. In other words, what John probably had most in mind here was that those who are truly of Christ or those who are truly of God have been born from above. It means God himself gave birth to you. Amen. That's what this literally means. The word, the Greek word is anothen. It means not part, but whole. The whole of us needs to be born from above. Not just part of you, not just a little part of me that it's kind of annoys you because you wish you could change that one part of your life, but like your whole needs to change. 
Every ounce of you, every ounce of me needs the change that is wrought through us, through the Holy Spirit, through Christ, and what's been accomplished through Christ. Jesus is taking Nicodemus to a higher plane here in this next passage, because when, what's he, how he's responded, how does he respond to Nicodemus when he has like, hey, am I supposed to go back to my mother's womb? Here's what he says. Unless someone is born of the water and spirit, you can't even enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. What's he trying to get at? This whole idea of being born of, of, of water and spirit stumps us sometimes because we think he's talking about two different births, right? So some of us will think, well, it means I'm going to be born as a human, right, through the birth canal, and then I need to be born of the spirit, so then that's what it means. That's not what it means, by the way. Or some will say, and some of our more legalistic and... Um, Church of Christ friends and Catholic friends will say, well, this means baptism. So you're born of water means you must be baptized. You must be born of the spirit. So then that's why they believe in regeneration, like regenerative, like baptism. Like that's what it means, but that's not what it means either. What it most likely means is it's one birth. Born of water and spirit. Joel 2 says this. Verse 28. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then their sons and their daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will pour out to the idea of pour. It's a picture of water, right? I will pour out my spirit. In other words, there's this reality of he's talking about there's something being poured over us, but there's also something that's being poured into us. Let's go a little bit further. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. He says, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you. In other words, I'll clean you from the outside, but not just from the outside. I will, and I will, um, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols and I will give you a new heart inside and put a new spirit within you inside and I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. What Jesus is saying here is that this new birth is the fact that God himself born from above, will wash you inside out. Amen. That means when, when you and I are born new, born in Christ, there is this reality that sets into our hearts that makes us love God and love the things of God and hate the things that God hates. This is what it means to be born of God, born from above. The cleansing of the outer man and the enlivening of the inner man are inseparable realities throughout the entire Old Testament. There's one birth manifested in the outward man being cleansed and the inward man being enlivened. This is what it's all mean, what he's trying to get at. So, but it's not just that. Look what he says next in the next passage. I mean, in the next, um, next, next verse. Whoops, lost my place here. He says, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. So it's not just enough for you to know that you must be born of, of, of water and of spirit, right? But that this birth is something that is entirely the work of the Spirit. In other words, no matter how good you and I try, you can't cleanse yourself enough. And that's just talking about the outside. Have you ever, you've been in a situation where you're like, you've gotten so dirty that you're not sure you can get off the grease. If you've ever worked on cars, you know that the grease is like not easy to come off your hands and it takes several days sometimes for it to come off, right? Like it, no matter how hard we try, eventually we will get that clean, but we'll never get the kind of cleansing that we need ourselves. The flesh can never cleanse ourselves enough. No, what is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Let me throw two big words at you. It means the work of God is monergistic, not synergistic. Think about this. If you're a, if you're a person who's worked on teams, and uh, you know that the act, whatever, whatever things you've been given, whatever tasks you've been given, you've been working on a team, that means synergistically everyone there plays a part, right? This guy's going to do this part of the project, this part of the person's going to do this part of the project. That's synergistic efforts. That means in this sense, you're not going to understand the work of the new birth is not synergistic. It's not like, well, God does part of it and I do part of it. For what's born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. No, it's monergistic. One. It's from a source of one. It's from one being, one person, if you will, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who infect in us a complete and total change. That's new birth. New birth is not a decision we make. You can't make yourself born again. You can't pray a prayer to make yourself born again. You can't walk an aisle to make yourself born again. Oh, you can confess sins and you can repent of sin and you can believe in Jesus, but only Christ can make what your confession that you're saying outwardly true by infecting your heart. Only Jesus can make your confession true. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So, so it's utterly necessary, it's utterly supernatural, and at last, Jesus shows that the new birth is confirmed by its effects. Because look what he says there in verse 8. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone, everyone who is born of the Spirit. Think about this for a second. This is wonderful. There's evidence to new birth. Jesus is making it clear here. Um, hey, when the Spirit blows, you know it's blowing. You may not know where it's coming from, and you may not know where it's going, but trust me, if you're born again, you know you're born again. You see the evidence of it. You may see hard and difficult steps. You may stumble along the way, but if you keep on trusting Christ, you keep on returning back to Him, you keep on turning back in faith, you keep turning towards repentance, you keep turning towards those, those things that are, that are part of the supernatural reality of our lives, we can be assured that this born again will make waves in our lives. It is a deep, profound work of the Spirit that is given to us through the work of Jesus. Jesus is making it clear here to Nicodemus and to us that even though we cannot produce new birth in ourselves, nonetheless, the new birth by the Spirit is one that will not go unnoticed. It will not go unnoticed. Barna estimates that 45% of the American population professes to be born-again Christians. Is, do you think, and this is purely conjecture, that 45% who, if there are 45% of our population was actually born again, that we would be where we are today in our nation? I don't think so. And I'm not here to say who's born again and who's not. But here's the evidence that Charles Spurgeon says is evidence of this new birth. In case you're wondering what that is. And by us, it's not your politics. It's not your voting ballot. It's not your side pet issues. None of that. Here's what they are. Faith in Christ. Number one. 
Do you have a deepening faith in Christ? A deepening dependence upon Christ? Two, do you see a, a growing desire, a growing need, a growing comfort in repentance of your sin? Do other brothers and sisters know what your proclivities to sin are? Are you open about those things? Are you humble enough to let people speak into them? Repentance of sin is number two, Charles Spurgeon says. Number three, prayer. Do you cry out? Do you try to seek communion with your God in heaven through the means? He invites us to prayer, brothers and sisters. And four, possession of new life. You can see the progressive effects of this new birth in your life. You can see, I am not what I want to be today, but by God's grace, I'm not what I once was. You see a a deepening and growing sense of new life in in your life. Friends, as we begin to kind of wrap it up this morning, I just want to ask a couple of questions of us this morning. Is our new birth causing a deeper examination of ourselves? Ways that Charles Spurgeon outlined or other ways. This is one of the reasons I love the Puritans. And I commend every believer should have a few of the Puritans' little reads on your shelf. You know why? Because there's something about the way that they wrote that is utterly um, beautiful and astounding. Because they would take the deepest and hardest and most profound biblical and doctrinal truths, but they would never let them just be. They would always say, what does it mean? What does it mean to me? If everyone has ever told you that that theology doesn't matter, they are full of it. Sorry if that offends some people here. But that is just the way it is. Like our doctrine, our doctrine it should show and it should enliven us and it should want, we should want to ask the questions of how our doctrine is experienced in our lives. And friends, I just wonder, is our new birth causing us for deeper examination like that in our lives? And then last, and we'll pray, does our new birth cause us encouragement in our weakness? I hate my sin. I hope you hate yours as well. But the one thing that I've noticed in my life over the last few years, maybe the last decade, as much as I hate my sin, God has caused me to love Jesus more. And so when I'm faced with my utter weakness and sin, I don't sit and wallow in it too long. At least I try not to. I try to go right back to the thing I love most. Jesus. Can I just suggest to us this morning that the evidence for new birth is returning to our first love? Is Jesus your first love this morning? As we come to the table this morning, I would ask us to a couple things before we come. In fact, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and rob Justin of anything he may be saying here in a minute. Um, Would you just spend some time in quiet, because I know Justin's going to do this, and ask yourself, is there any sin that would keep you from coming to the table this morning? I'm not suggesting that we all need to have this mass, not take the Lord's Supper thing, okay? 
but just to ask yourself, has there, is there any part of your life right now that you just need to bring before the Lord and trust Him with because you're holding on to it too hard, too much? But the other thing I'd ask this morning is, as you do, when you come, will you find in the elements this morning a deeper joy in Christ? A deeper love and affection for who He is and what He has accomplished for you? Because, friends, you can't make it to the table without him carrying you there. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. You can't make it to the table unless he carries you to the table. Let's pray. God, help us now as we finish up we prepare for the Lord's table. Be glorified in all of our time together this morning, Lord. Help whatever deficiencies that have been in me this morning that may have missed some aspects of this text or perhaps could have communicated them better. God, would you be glorified, God, nonetheless, that your word has been spoken. It has been, to my best ability, expounded, and God, may it now be applied to the hearts of your hearers here this morning. May your children be edified and encouraged and emboldened for the life of witness as we go out this week. It's in Christ's name. Amen.